Colossians chapter 3 and Mark chapter 4 is what we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to tell you this is the end of our series together. We've, we've looked at on uh, uh, four things I wish you knew about God. And I've been building to this last message, which I'm, I'm going to tell you this morning when it comes to our life in Christ, is, uh, is challenging to think about. This is one of these topics that we're going to discuss this morning. I think as all four topics have been, is, is it's something that, that not, not only do Christians know, but it's a, it's a topic that we, we continue to learn in our life with Christ. What does it mean to live life this way? And so let me give you just the idea of what we're going to follow this morning. That's one of the things I wish you knew about God. And that is that God wants you to lose your identity apart from him and take on a new identity in him. God wants you to lose your identity in, in his identity. And in the, in the book of Mark in chapter 8, I'm not going to be in chapter 4 just yet, but in, in chapter 8, I'm just going to give you this basic verse in Scripture that Jesus shares with his disciples as sort of the platform to build into the two passages of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. But in, in Jesus' life, in, in Mark chapter 8, there's something that is significant that takes place within the gospel of Mark right in the middle of the book. The first eight chapters, Jesus is preaching predominantly about his kingdom. And in chapter eight, there's something that takes place called the confession of Peter and Peter acknowledging who Jesus is, the Christ. And upon this confession that that Peter gives to Jesus, Jesus transitions his message. He he further explains it. Yes, he, he continues to propagate and teach about his kingdom, but now he teaches his people how to be people in pursuit of that kingdom. We use the word discipleship as a summation describing that. After Peter's confession, Jesus teaches about his death, and then he teaches his followers about what it means to be a disciple. Jesus teaches about being a disciple over the next three chapters in Mark. Every time Jesus foretells his death, you can go look at this later in, in your personal study in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. As Jesus foretells something specific about his death, right after he foretells about his death, he then explains to the disciples something about what it means to pursue Jesus with their lives. God's desire is for you to lose your identity apart from him and take on a new identity in him. And this is, this is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. He said, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One of the reasons I want to examine this section of scripture together with us this morning is because we as, as believers get really good at cleverly crafting our words within Christianity. <laughs> Meaning there's a, there's a specific lingo that we sometimes live by. And, and our pursuit of Jesus can even fool ourselves by the terminology we use. And what I mean is we give evidence of Jesus by our lips, but we deny him by our lifestyle. But what God desires for us is for us to lose our identity apart from him and take on a new identity in him. And if that doesn't communicate it any better than this verse, I don't know what does. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and and follow me. If if, if anything, I I think this passage certainly says uh, that, that God's plan for you is not boring. And if your picture of Jesus and joining together with his church is boring, someone somewhere is doing it wrong. What this passage communicates for us is that God has an incredible journey for you. 
And that journey is more than just you get to go to heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. One of the reasons I love this passage is because of the way it's communicated in the Greek language. This word for workmanship is the word for where we get our English word poem. God sees you as his poem. If you were to read the context of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, you'll discover that what Jesus says in this passage through Paul is that we're dead, meaning we're separated from God. And he explains to us in that separation, God has reconciled us to him completely by his power and what he's done for us on the cross as we place our faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is the pinnacle of this passage which says, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And he, he doesn't end with, and so now you get to go to heaven. But then he, in verse 10, takes a further step and says, and now you're on this incredible journey. You are God's poem. And he's taken the old identity that you had separated from him and he's shaping you in a new identity through him. Many times we get in the way of, of the journey God desires to produce in us. And so this morning what I want to encourage us to do is not to cheapen the journey God desires to have with you. I just want to talk about just a couple of ways we tend to do that with, within an evangelical Christian world by the, by the terms of the gospel that we propagate today. One of the things that I find, and maybe this will be a little bit of a pet peeve for a minute, but just hear me out, is the way that we tend to cheapen the gospel by the way we present it to people to hear the message of Christ. And what I mean is sometimes we, we summarize the gospel down to this thought that you don't want to go to hell, so go to heaven, right? But, but that message emphasizes uh, the individual more than it does Jesus because let me, let, me, let me paint it this way. When we make the gospel about not going to hell but going to heaven, we miss the very one who created heaven for us to experience with him. We talk about let's not go to, go to hell, but, but go to heaven. The, the whole point of eternity is dealing with your relationship with God. But when we communicate the aspect of heaven and hell apart from Jesus, what we communicate is the centralization of, of the gospel is about me. And therefore, I, I need to get to heaven because it's, it's going to be a better place for me. And we preach a message devoid of Jesus, who is the very prize of heaven itself. So the joy of what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus is there. Now, I'll acknowledge when we talk about heaven and hell within Scripture that Christ warns about eternity, and eternity is forever. But, but the point of what Jesus has accomplished for us is, isn't primarily about heaven and hell, though it plays a part in it. What Jesus accomplished for us is for us to enjoy his presence forever. And wherever his presence is experienced, that, that is what heaven is about. God wants to do much more in our lives than make it about heaven and hell. 
So if we view the gospel that way, this is the way we experience our, our walk with Jesus is that I get this get out of hell free card and now I just twiddle my thumbs for the rest of the day until I get to experience this option that God has given me. But Jesus, he, he is the prize of what heaven is all about. Maybe a challenge to you as you you think about that thought is to see if you can find one place in the Bible that describes heaven without the Lord being present. So what I find within scripture as you you look through sections and passages that deal with the afterlife and into eternity and in God's presence, heaven is not described apart from the beautiful presence of God being there. If all Christianity was about was avoiding hell so you could go to heaven, the moment you trusted in Jesus, God should have taken you out of the world. But the fact that you remain says something more to us that God desires to do with you and in you. You are his poem. And Jesus wants to take the identity that you had apart from him and shape a new identity in him. The prize of heaven is Christ, and heaven isn't heaven without Christ. In fact, in Colossians 3, we're just going to look at three chunks of Scripture this morning as I explain some of these thoughts to us. But Colossians 3 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God, set your mind on, on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The message isn't just you get to go to heaven, though it is a part. The message is you get to experience eternity in the presence of your creator. When I read a verse like take up your cross and follow after me, there's, there's something within our nature sometimes that balks at the trust that that takes. And we talked about this a, a few weeks ago that when it comes to God, sometimes we, we attribute things to him that we've experienced in, in this world, meaning this world has disappointment. And we find a life when we trust in things, inevitably at some point it will let us down. But the Bible told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul marks something significant about God that's different than anything else in creation. And he says this, that God is faithful. He starts off that verse with those three words, God is faithful. And what Paul's trying to say to us as people, if there's anything dependable, if there's anything worth trusting in, if there's anything you can bank your life upon, it's the God who is trustworthy. God's concern is for you. That's the whole point of Jesus' coming. He didn't do that for himself, but selflessly he did it to rescue you that you may experience what he's talking about in Colossians because it is, it is significant for your life. Jesus has created you for life and life is in him. He upholds all things by his hands. There's a term in, in Christianity that we use. It's found throughout scripture. It's called Justification. Understanding our our journey through the justification God has brought you helps us see Christ as the prize. 
This word for justification helps us understand how to refuse to cheapen the gospel as merely just going to heaven and avoiding hell. The main point of the word justification isn't intended to emphasize that you get to go to heaven, although it certainly is the result. The main point of justification is that the condemnation and separation you've experienced from God has been removed so that you can draw near to him. Justification means declared righteous. The thought of justification is a a judicial term and and it mets both justice and freedom. And what it's saying to us is God the Father looks at the penalty Jesus paid on your half and he declares that payment for that sin has been justified and you and that justification now are declared righteous in God because of what Christ has done. The justification of God emphasizes the significance of Jesus and allows us to see and appreciate him alone as the prize of what heaven is all about. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about this thought of justification. He says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5 and Galatians 2 really communicate the significance of what justification is all about. Chapter 2 tells us that it's not by our power, but by Jesus's. Chapter 5 tells us when we attempt to make it by our power, we're severed from the one who came to set us free by his own justification in himself. This justification is by Jesus alone. Now, said in the beginning, sometimes we use Christianese to fool ourselves into thinking that we, 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 we have this deep concern to lay down our lives for Jesus. But the reality is one of the ways that we can check ourselves is what you really long for in the world to come. Is heaven your ultimate prize because you know it's a good place for you and you just want to be there? And, and to you, it's not a thought of Christ. Or is having your prize because Jesus is truly there and your desire is to be with him in his presence? I think one of the reasons uh, that's important for us to approach a verse that says, take up your cross and follow me, is that unless Jesus really is your ultimate prize, when life gets hard, you abandon him. In fact, when we read Mark chapter 4, we're going to see that in just a few minutes. Jesus gives four examples of the type of individuals that that hear his message. And and the third one that he shares with is an individual who says he pursues God with his life, but the moment it gets tough, he abandons it. And you look at that parable and you ask the question, why? And, And my longing and inclination within that passage is to simply say that the things they pursued God for wasn't because Jesus was the ultimate prize. They saw Jesus as a tool to get to what they thought was an ultimate prize. And I think we can do that with heaven. It's not to say that it's, it's, it's good to think about the goodness of what heaven is, is about because it represents the goodness of God who created it. Certainly think about the good things of heaven. But heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. Jesus. 
Colossians reminds us when we think about Christ to set our, our minds on Christ who is here ruling and reigning in, in this eternity. Getting to the celestial heaven isn't the ultimate prize. Living the presence of God's grace is the ultimate prize for this gracious God is the one who created the celestial heaven for you to enjoy his presence. Heaven isn't about us, it's about his glory and we are the beneficiaries of the glory of God being displayed in such a heavenly place. God has you on this incredible journey with him. Justification helps us and reminds us of seeing Jesus as the ultimate prize, but so does this other word within Scripture, and we call it sanctification. Understanding the thought of sanctification helps us not to cheapen the gospel as well. Not only does justification show us what, what God does for our benefit, so does sanctification. This word sanctification reminds us that we not only have a future with Christ, but we also have a present with him. This word sanctification means you don't have to wait to enjoy God in the future through justification. But because of your justification, you get to enjoy God in your sanctification right now. So the word sanctification in its root basis means set apart. That the moment you trusted in Christ, God justified you in him, made you righteous, declared you righteous, uh, and made you his own. And now he is setting you apart for his great purposes in him. You belong to Jesus and Jesus is on this journey with you. In fact, in Colossians 3, if you just read this chunk of scripture a little bit further, if you ask for a definition of sanctification, a lot of times people will turn to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10, and this is what it said, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Going on a little further, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ which richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This word for sanctification allows us to recognize that Jesus is doing a work in you to shape you from your old identity into an identity that is found in him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, it says uh, to us, as we gaze upon the face of God, we're transformed in his image glory by glory, moment by moment. For you, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you just you felt this transformation take place or this heart desire uh, being transformed within your life or what you desired before is now different than what you desire now, we would say that word, that word is what Christ is calling sanctification, this transformation where he is now molding you into his image. That is, that is the journey that God desires for you to be beyond with him. It helps us to experience and enjoy his presence right now. The Bible tells us it's what sets us free. In Galatians chapter 5, I just maybe juxtapose this thought compared to Colossians chapter 3. says this in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What Jesus is saying happens in our sanctification is this. 
God has finally, through Christ, set you free to enjoy the journey he created you for with him. I read in Galatians 2 and Galatians 5 a minute ago where we try to justify ourselves by our own doing. We find that it is impossible, but it's, but it's done by Christ's doing. But when Christ does that for us, brings us justification, we're now set free to enjoy the sanctification which before we could not do within our own power. But here's what happens with us in sanctification. Sometimes within our terminology of freedom as Americans, we've taken the word freedom to mean I can do whatever I want. I'm free. And therefore, if I want to offend people, I can offend people. And if I, if I want to just serve myself, I can serve myself. If I want to do something else, I, I can because I'm free. I can say what I want. I can do what I want. I'm free, right? That's true in the way that we sometimes define freedom as Americans, but that's not what freedom is about based on what Scripture communicates to us. Look at the way Jesus, or Paul defines it through Christ in Galatians 5. He says, For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When Jesus set you free, your freedom wasn't intended to selfishly die with you. As a matter of fact, if we as people only use our freedom to serve ourselves today as American citizens, freedom dies with us. Because what makes freedom freedom is the willing for those who are free to lay down their lives in service to another. That's what propagates freedom. What Jesus is getting us to acknowledge here is that your freedom now, now finally in understanding who Christ is, now gives you the opportunity to help liberate other people in, in Christ, making him the prize and the joy rather than taking sanctification and seeing I've been set free and so therefore I'll use my freedom for me. The whole point of that freedom is now to, to see how God can use you on that platform to see others liberated through the freedom that you have experienced. Freedom isn't about selfishness. Freedom's about selflessness. Someone always has to lay down their lives so that you can experience it. And Jesus came to set you free, having laid down your life, now says, if anyone desires to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. If you understand that Jesus is the prize of heaven, that your sanctification is centered upon Christ alone, and that freedom is only found through him, then in that we find ourselves liberating others by preaching and sharing the freedom that Christ has given to us. Freedom isn't about self. It's selfless. God wants to take your identity apart from him and shape your identity in him. A few ways just to examine the heart as to whether or not we do that as people is just to simply ask ourselves, what really is my prize for eternity? Is it a heaven apart from Christ? Or is it heaven because of Christ?
is it freedom for myself? Or is it freedom for selflessness? The way we demonstrate whether or not we understand it is seen by the way we interact with people in this world. How we love, the way we care, the sacrifices you make at your convenience for the convenience of someone else. Not just simply the words that we say, but, but the way that we live. And God's called you to make a difference. I think Jesus shared that throughout Scripture. He's, in Hebrews it says, you, you serve a kingdom that is unshakable. And Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 28 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Then go into the world. In 6.18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God ha- has built you as movers and shakers for, for his kingdom. And, and, and I want to just remind us last week, one of the important foundations that we talked about in John chapter 3, when, when Jesus goes and calls us into this world, when he came, he said this, he didn't come to condemn the world. But through him, that the world may have life because of what he's done. God has called us to be people of life. People that demonstrate the grace of God by by making known how his grace has been poured out on us and not only for us, but for all of mankind and encouraging life in him. So let me get to Mark. In the book of Mark, knowing that Jesus has called us into this world to be a light for him, he describes four different types of reactions to who he is. This parable is actually described in the book of Matthew and Luke as well, but in Mark's where I'm going to quote it from, it says this, and he began to teach again by the sea, talking about Jesus. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, The sower went out to sow. Let me stop right there and just say this. When you study parables within the Bible, um, there's there's some danger to it. And I just want to, in a hermeneutics or what that word means, just basically your studying of the Bible, it's important to understand the way that Jews would teach parables. When a Jew would teach a parable, there was typically, the reason they taught a parable was to teach one central theme within the parable, okay? They usually had one point that they wanted to make. Sometimes within Jesus' teaching, he taught parables with multiple points, like uh, I think um, uh, the lost son, when, when the, or the prodigal son, when he ran away from his father. You can use that parable to see a couple different points, but predominantly when a parable was taught, there was one main point. You get into a lot of heretical teaching when you take parables that were intended to make one point, and you try to make lots of points and make everything mean something. The only time I would say that you should take a parable and make it mean more than one point is after Jesus teaches the parable, if he explains it to us within the text, and he makes it mean more than one thing, okay? That's how you know you're being careful with the parable. And Jesus does that in Mark chapter 4. As soon as he's done, he teaches what it means. So let me go back to this. Listen to this, he says in verse 3. Behold, the sir went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell along the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. 
and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it was withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seed fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And what is this parable saying to us? Well, optimists, you optimists out there, <laughs> you would look at a parable like this maybe and you would say, you know, maybe, maybe the, the, this garden that's being planted, maybe everything didn't grow all the way, but at least something grew, right? I, I, I just, just to think through that for a minute, if you were a farmer and you had to farm land and you went out and your vegetables or whatever you're growing grew three-fourths of the way, but nothing ever sprouted that was edible, would you be excited that that grew? Uh, to me, I would be a little upset with all the labor I poured into my garden, <laughs> only to find out that every ounce of energy I spent ended up producing nothing that was helpful for me and my family. Uh, uh, this year, I decided I was going to plant a garden. Yeah, I heard somebody laugh. <laughs> and uh, I decided I wanted to do a little science experiment this year. Uh, I didn't know how good Utah soil is. Where I'm from, if I throw a seed in the ground, I come back the next day, it's Jack and the Beanstalk going on. But here in Utah, it's a little different with the soil. And, and so I decided, you know, I'm going to see how bad the soil is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to till up the ground. I'm going to actually put some, some growing, some nice soil in the ground on one half. On the other half, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let my plants grow the way that the natural ground is. And so I planted and I put some plants on one side, some plants on the other side. One side of, of, my, um, of my garden now looks like a tropical jungle. And now the other side is just the, it's just the cry fest when I go outside. I, I walk out and I, and I look at my garden and there's the pathetic tomato plants that are almost knee high now. And there's, there's, there's like a, a couple days ago I noticed there's a tomato about the size of a pea that just eh, sprouted out on one plant. And that's all I've got going on that side. But then I go to the other side and I got other plants as well. And one I have, I have, Stacey and I went to spend the last few weeks doing camp with uh, kids up on the mountain. And, and so we haven't looked at the garden that much. And so I went back this week and looked at one. And we have a zucchini that, that could feed Goliath sitting on one side of our garden. The point of the story isn't that something grew. The point of the story is that there's something that grew the right way. Sometimes we look at a story like this as people and we're sensitive to what Jesus wants to do in our lives and we say to ourselves, oh man, which one of the four am I? Am I, am I going to be the, uh, the one that the thorns, it grows and it, and it, and it just gets choked out? Am I, am I going to be the one that, that continues to, to grow and yields what God wants? Am I one where he scattered the seed and I don't even know what's going to happen to me? I mean, which, which one am I? Usually when someone approaches a passage like that, I want to say if you're sensitive to what God says within this verse, it's the sensitive people to this passage that I'm least concerned about. Because what it really communicates is that you're concerned with where you are in Christ. 
And so when you come to a passage like this, I, I don't think this verse is meant to condemn you. I'm glad that maybe in your life you might feel conviction over, over where you're not aligned with Jesus. But I think rather than con- feeling condemnation, what this verse is intended to do is encourage you. Let me tell you why. When you read verse 8, Jesus describes those who fell on the good soil. And then he describes the way that they respond in, in, in landing in this good soil. They produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, I don't know how people know this, but I, I looked this up. I, I have no idea how you find information out like this, but... But during the time of Christ, it was estimated that when a crop would yield produce, it took one crop to yield eight to ten uh, items off of it for, for uh, selling or eating or, or replanting into the ground. So one crop yielded eight to ten produce from its plant. And what Jesus is saying within this passage is far more significant than what the typical crop would produce when it was harvest time. What Jesus is saying is those that are, that are planted properly, they produce 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Well, what Jesus is encouraging us here is, is not to make your pursuit what you produce. I want to be careful in looking at this passage and, and saying that, that what God's desire for you in, in here isn't, isn't to try really hard for Jesus' sake to produce more results. What it's saying. The result is showing us just how healthy the crop is when it is nourished out of this special soil. I think what Jesus is saying is what counts to God isn't the numerical results. The results are supernaturally up to him. What counts to God is that you and your heart's desire is to glory in him. Failing to glory in Christ causes us not to see him as the prize of heaven and the freedom in life. The point of this passage isn't that you need to try really hard to yield more. The point of this passage is that you root yourself in the soil. When you stick to the soil, when you deny yourself and take up your cross, when you see Jesus as the prize of life, that's when God supernaturally does things beyond just normal comprehension. A regular crop in and of itself, they can do eight, ten good things. But Jesus, when he has a hold of your life, it's supernatural. This is what I think. God's not going to get to the end of your life and measure your results by what we would deem earthly success. You're not going to get to the end of life and God's not going to measure you based on how often you're in the church every time the doors open 
although God wants you to encourage his people. God's not going to judge you on how many people you lead to him, though he wants you to lead people to him. God's not going to judge you based on how many people you see baptized, though he wants people to profess their faith in him. God isn't going to judge you by the dollar amount you gave to him, although he desires for you to give cheerfully. He isn't going to judge you by the outward appearance or man-made methods of success. God's going to measure your life by one way. How you gave yourself to him. And that's the point of this parable. That's the point of what justification does for us. That's the point of what sanctification does for us. That's the point of what heaven is all about. It's the point of why God has set you free. It's the reason we're here today. That when we take the time to glory in something, and when our hearts are inclined to worship something, that worship goes to Christ. Because when you're attached to that soil, God in that does miraculous things through your life and in your life. We can make heaven about us and we can make heaven about heaven, but we can also make heaven void of Jesus. We can make freedom in Christ about us and yet never make it about Jesus. We can even make results for Christ about us producing fruit and not about Jesus being our soil. But here's what God desires. God desires that you glory in him. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You are his poem. And they summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and and follow me. Your justification was found in his glory. Your sanctification is found in his glory. Your growth with him is found in his glory. Christianity is Jesus. My encouragement to you this morning is to be a reminder in your life to let Christ be the ultimate prize. And the way that it looks for us isn't by pushing everything else aside and saying, you know what, sorry, I don't have time for that. I gotta read my Bible. You know, sorry, I don't have time for that. I gotta pray. No, sorry, I can't stop thinking about Jesus. Get away from me, get away from me. I gotta, I gotta do nothing but think about Jesus. <laughs> Now I would say that's definitely putting Jesus first in everything. But what Jesus desires rather is to be the center of everything. He is the centerpiece of heaven. He is the centerpiece of your family. He is the centerpiece of your church. He is the centerpiece of your life. When you make him the center of your life rather than first in your life, what you do is as you journey through life, you seek the way God would desire to make himself known in the way that you live. Put him first. Or better yet, let him be the center.